We've been looking at the uh, book of James, this very unique and uh, interesting book and extremely helpful uh, book that is in the New Testament written by the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. That's what most scholars believe. A very early writing, probably some scholars believe that it's the first New Testament book that was written. So it, uh, it's very interesting. It's not like any other book in the New Testament. And James starts out right away. You get the, the feeling, the tenor of what his book is going to be like because he comes out swinging and punching, and it's pretty amazing. You know, living here in El Paso, I don't know if you all noticed the past few days, but this is the windy season. This is the nasty time of the year here. rest of the year is pretty beautiful, but the wind is unbelievable. And, uh, but there's one good thing about the wind, and I enjoy that because I have a lot of grass in my backyard, and you know in El Paso it all dies in the wintertime, turns yellow, and then there's this thatch that gets accumulated on there. And so I like to, when it's blowing 90 miles an hour, I'm out there raking because it takes it away to my neighbor and you know, let them deal with it. And so uh, I'm out there raking away this week, and, and, and I've got all my muscles are sore. I'm... I'm I'm worn out, and I hope you feel bad for me because it was hard work. And, uh, but I raked and raked and raked. One of the things you notice when you're doing that is that the wind, you think it's going one direction, but what does it always do? It always goes this way now. So I'm moving around. I'm trying to, you know, I'm like a, a running back in football trying to find the, the way through. You know, one minute it's going this way and that way. The same thing happens if any of you have been camping. You build a nice fire. What happens? Smoke blows in your face. So you move around the campfire, and then what happens? Blow, smoke blows in your face. And we have all kinds of an, you know, stories and anecdotes of why that happens. You know, it blows to the ugliest person uh, or whatever. So, uh, and that's kind of what James is talking about here. He's saying, you know, we live in a world where there is a strong, blistering uh, force of wind and gales that are blowing all the time. It's what we call the already not yet, this tension that we live in. And everybody lives in that tension. Christians not excluded. We live in the tension that's here in this world. We know it's supposed to be better than it is, but there's always this, this flow and this current. And, and right out of the gate, James says, count it all joy when you hit trials because you know that the testing of your faith will produce patience and endurance. So we're going to talk a little bit more about I'm going to finish this particular section, although he comes back to it repeatedly in the letter, the idea of trials and testing and the struggles that human beings have, Christians especially. When Jesus regenerates your heart, you become more tender and sensitive to the world around you. And at the same time, uh, you're supposed to have this joy and underlying current of strength that kind of props you up. But a lot of times, it can be tough. You're fighting that wind, that current that's always blowing and sometimes changing directions. So let's look. We're just going to read again verses 2 through 8. It's printed in your bulletin, the whole chapter, or the first 18 verses, I believe. Uh, we'll read only 2 through 8, and then I'll, I'll finish with verse 12, which is a, kind of connected to the other part. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature, complete, and lacking nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we read this passage, and I said this repeatedly during this first introductory stage of James. We read, not count it all joy. We read, be joyful, act joyful, be happy, and all of that. That is not what the text says. It doesn't even imply that. You are going to mourn. You're going to grieve. You're going to suffer Sometimes in a trial, especially the kind of trial that James is talking about. And he's not asking you to put on a happy face. He's not asking you to, to, to say, when somebody asks you, how's it going? You, you know, Christians are notorious. Oh, everything's fine. Or we'll use bumper sticker theology and we'll say, better than I deserve, which is supposed to be humble. I don't know. It's, it sounds yucky to me. Better than I deserve. What does that mean? We don't even think about what it means, but it sounds pious and it sounds holy. And, eh, you, you know, you're getting, yeah, we're getting better than we deserve, but it could, you know, that thing that happened didn't have to happen. Why is it happening? And it's crushing us and your heart is broken and things are not going well and there's this current, this force that is pushing against you and causing all kinds of distress. We read, be joyful, feel joyful, but that's not what it says. And I quoted Courtney Doctor last week, another good lady theologian who is really amazing. Her, her uh, book on James, her little study guide is absolutely fantastic and I've been using it. She says this, it's extremely difficult to change the way we feel about something. So James does not tell us to feel joyful when you meet trials of various kinds. Instead, he says, count it all joy. Think about it. Consider what's going on. Look at it as objectively as you can. And consider what we know about God. In other words, bring into the equation not just the trial, but also the character of God, what we know about Him. Rejoice in the fact that God is doing something. We may not know what it is, and often we don't. But He will not fail us. He's doing something in the midst of our heartache. He's not just asking you to kind of go forward blindly and rejoice and be happy. No, that's not possible. Nor should it be. That's what cults will tell you to do. They'll say, you know, alter your mind, twist your mind, and force yourself to act a certain way. Christianity does not do that. Christianity is is as down to earth as you can get. Jesus wept. He grieved. He danced at weddings. He drank wine. He, he knew how to love passionately and he also knew how to grieve and sorrow and lament deeply. And we should not be afraid to be like that. It's no indication there's anything wrong with your faith. In fact, when your faith is challenged, that may be an authentication of your faith. Because faith, by its very nature, is not something you can prove And so it is going to come under scrutiny. 
Even in your own heart, your own heart will say, wow, do I believe? Am I really steadfast? So after the shock and trauma of a, chi- of a trial, now I'm not, you know, I've been through them. I know everyone in this room has been through a trial of some kind, probably more than one, probably lots of them. And some of those trials are accompanied by intense suffering. can be physical, mental, spiritual, can be any number of things. Trials, sometimes accompanied by suffering, not always, but sometimes. After that initial shock of being in the trial, sometimes it takes years. I have known people and I myself have experienced that where you have a trial and some intense suffering and sometimes it's not a, for a year, two years, five years. It could be a decade later when finally you're able to get a, a, a grip on your life and kind of stop and consider and think and know this. That all that time, God is patiently waiting. He is holding fast to you. And when you're able to stop and think and consider, maybe it's just immediately during the trial, or maybe it's months later or years later, doesn't matter. Whatever it is, He's wanting you to consider and think about the whole thing and search for the truth. Not that everything's going to work out hunky-dory. Maybe it won't work out hunky-dory. You know, it didn't work out that great for our Savior. He ended up on a cross. Now, the resurrection was coming, but Jesus suffered a kind of trial, a kind of separation from His friends, His family, and His Father that we probably will never completely understand. And we need to be thinking about that. Christianity is a thinking religion. It's not one in which you uh, do uh, um and you sit there and kind of try to enter an altered state of consciousness where you're not thinking. No. Christianity makes you think. Think. Think deeply. Feel deeply. And God redeemed our feelings along with the rest of us. So if our heart is broken, know that He doesn't want you to, oh, forget your feelings. No, He redeemed those feelings along with our mind, our bodies, everything else. And I don't like hearing people, especially us, you know, Presbyterians and Reformed, we've got such great theology, and you hear all the time, don't trust your feelings. Oh, really? So you can always trust your mind? Your mind never plays tricks on you? Well, it does. No, God redeemed all of us. And so sometimes our feelings are genuine and authentic and real. And sometimes our mind is thinking right and doing right. But you don't want to become suspicious of any part of you. What you want to do is remain steadfast. Now listen, after the shock and trauma, every person going through a trial is going to have to consider, do some thinking about what happened And here's what I want to give you. I'm just going to give you a few things. What James says, and it's a little troubling. I don't know. I don't particularly like what he said, but he said it. And now that I'm starting to think about it, I'm coming to love it. He says, count it all joy. And then he frames everything he says in between that with verse 12. You're going to get a crown of life. Think about the crown of life. Count it all joy while you're looking at this crown of life. Now, the crown of life is not pie in the sky. It's not something up there, oh good, I get to go to heaven and everything's going to be okay. No, he's talking about something else and I'll explain what it is. First of all, let's consider. Let me help us walk through this. Think about this. Consider the trial. James opens his entire letter with the reality that we live in a world where 
trials are present. They're there for Christians and they're there for non-believers. They're there for everybody. We're all facing trials. And what James is saying is the same thing that Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, Peter, be surprised. Don't be surprised, beloved, when a fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening. Rejoice in so far. Now, Peter is saying, put it in context, in so far as you're sharing in Christ's suffering, saying Jesus suffered, enter in, embrace that suffering, knowing that if he suffered, you can suffer too, and that your suffering will be redeemed. Your trial will be redeemed. It's not going to just go up in a puff of smoke. You're going to lose nothing. You will be redeemed, and everything along with it making all things new. That you may rejoice, Peter goes on to say, and be glad when His glory is revealed. When His glory is revealed, you see. And you can experience that. Imagine being able to experience that now in your trial, knowing that God is going to reveal glory. Let me just give you very quickly encapsulated about trials. First of all, they are certain. Look at verse 2. When you meet them, Not if you meet them. They're to be expected. You don't have to like them. In fact, I don't like them. Who likes the test? Nobody likes tests. But we shouldn't be taken by surprise. We don't live in a bubble. We live in the world. And Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. Be of good cheer. What? I have overcome the world. So you remain rooted in your Savior, rooted and grounded and anchored in Him. And that's where James is taking us the whole way through. Trials are certain. But listen, I told you last week, trials are also impersonal. If you think, oh my God, my, you know, the Lord just gave me cancer because He wants to do something, you're going to be in a, a world of hurt worse than the cancer. No, he's not giving you something in order to to try you. In fact, later on in verse 13 and 14, he says, don't say the Lord's doing this. This is not a product of his where he's doing this to you. It's a product of sin. And and, and the, the, the confusion comes from us thinking that God is going to hurt us or try to do something to us. No, the trials come. They're impersonal. They're just history. They're just events, things that happen in life. And they also provide you and present to you, a better way to say it, they present to us a choice. We don't think we have choice. We think that uh, destiny and you know all this other stuff or that God is a great puppet master and, and He's pulling strings and all that. That's a misconception in our theology. God frees us so that we can make good and wise choices. So our choices are good and free You can make bad ones, but you can make a good choice. And he says, count it all joy. It's in an imperative mood, so it's a command. He's saying you must do this. You must take the trial and you must address the trial. You can't let the trial take you like the wind and the waves and sweep you away and not answer the trial. Now maybe at first when you're under the shock of it or some terrible tragedy happens in your life, you know, it may take some time, a month, a year, years, who knows how long it'll take. But at some point you have to confront what is happening. 
And that takes us to this second part. You've got trials, and he's, he's kind of, if you can imagine, I wish we had a, a blackboard up here, a whiteboard, I could draw it for you, but there's testing, there's trials, there's doubt, and then there's wisdom. He's got these four things kind of sandwiched in between, counting it joy and the crown of life, and he's asking us to look at these and how they're linked, how they're connected. And so he takes us from the reality of the trial to what makes a trial a trial in James' uh, consideration. If you, James isn't talking about every trial. Some trials are just tests of knowledge. How do you, what do you know? But what James is saying is when it confronts your faith, I talked about this last week, Again, in verse 2, it says, When you meet trials of every kind, it is a testing, you use a different word, testing of your faith. So the trial is impersonal, okay? But when the trial slams up against what you believe, those deeply held beliefs and things that you assume, things that you presume, things that you've been taught, a lot of times from the Bible. Your trial comes and slams into your faith, what you believe, and that's when it becomes a test. That's when it becomes a test. It's a test of faith. Look at verse 3. When the trying of your faith is what's in view here, and that's what, that's what James is trying to get at. He's not saying everything is a trial, every difficulty is a trial. No, some are just difficult. You know, like raking your backyard. That's hard work. It's a trial. But it didn't confront my faith. I did question the Holy Spirit as to which direction the wind was going to go. And He didn't give me very good answers. You know, is it going to go this way? I'll move over here. And no, I'm raking it goes this way. Would you please tell me? And of course, I'm Presbyterian, so He doesn't speak to me. Um, (laughs) So the testing of your faith, when it becomes personal, when you feel your heart beginning to unravel, to go to pieces, to to start to become unwhole, like we talked about last week, uh, God wants us whole. And when we find ourselves coming apart, that's the first indication that something is wrong, that it's personal, that your faith is being tested. The trial, it's neutral, but the faith now is being tested. And what he says is you must remain steadfast. You all know the story, uh, a very extraordinarily familiar story in the Gospel of uh, uh, John where Lazarus, Jesus' friend, dies. And Jesus waits four days to go. He gets a letter from the sisters, Mary and Martha, come and heal uh, your friend Lazarus. He's sick and Jesus doesn't go. And you're kind of thinking, what is going on? And then he gets there. Four days later, Lazarus is dead. He's been in the tomb for days. And the sisters, first Martha, then Mary, they come out to meet him in the road. And they both say the same thing. If you had been here. See, they're in a trial. And what is being addressed? If you had been here. That's the test. Their faith is in Christ. I thought you could do these great things, Jesus. If you had just come, he would have been fine. And what does Jesus say? No, no, wait a minute. I'm on my way to the tomb. As soon as I get there, I'm going to make all things right. No. He says to Mary and Martha, 
I'm the resurrection and the life. You want a miracle. I want you to want me. I want you to find your heart beat, the throbbing of your heart in me, not what I will do. Not what I can give you, healing your brother or even raising him from the dead. Mary, uh, Martha even went so far as, I know if you ask, God will do anything for you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she, her, she still couldn't get rid of her doubt. I know they'll rise in the resurrection. He said, no, I am the resurrection. You've got to get your eyes off of all this stuff and put them on your Savior. A trial is just a trial. It's a test when it confronts your faith and starts to draw you and blow you and carry you like a current away from Him. And in verse 4, he said, let it have its full effect. Let the trial and the test have its full effect. In other words, he's saying, stick. Don't give in. It just amazes me how quickly Christians will get angry at God and start blaming Him for everything. When a trial comes and some terrible thing happens, we immediately begin to question Him. James is going to tell us not to do that in a couple of verses. Next week we'll talk... Uh, or maybe the week after we'll talk about that, why he's telling you, don't, don't start blaming God. Run to Him. Turn to Him. Turn to the crown of life. But we are all too quick, folks, when trouble comes, to start blaming God as if He's the author of that horrific event. Stay fast. Stand fast. Remain steadfast. Don't give up on the one who never has given up on you, who loves you with cords of love, who wraps you in cords of love. Don't tie a knot at the end of the rope and hang on. Just know that He's got you and trust Him. Turn to Him. It's not your willpower that's going to hold you in place. It is His character. It's who He is. And, and making a decision, choosing to keep your eyes on the mark, Jesus Christ. Fight for your faith. Jacob wrestled with an angel. I know some of you have uh, probably not read the account, but seen the movie 300 uh, with Gerard Butler. Um, All of us men watch that, and we immediately, the first thing, when we see Gerard Butler in the first scene, do you know what men do? They go like this. Right? I want to see that six-pack down here, and we don't have a six-pack. We have a... Uh, a liter bottle. And so <laughs> it's on the side and it's sticking. Okay, so, you know, you've seen 300. You know the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, the, the Greeks, uh, 300 Spartans, true story, uh, standing at the, the gates of Thermopylae, the, this narrow chasm, and holding off the entire army of the Persian army uh, uh, of Xerxes I and holding them back for three days. Just these few guys. And they, in the movie, it's really cool because they have studded boots, you know, they've gotten that. It was true. They did have studs on the bottom of their boots and they would dig those boots in and hold their shields and they would stand fast. They weren't going to go and be offensive. They were just going to hold, hold, hold. They used willpower. They used their their love of country and we've got to protect Greece and their allegiance to their king and all that. And there's some connections, but think about the resource that you and I have. That the thing filling our windshield is the steadfast man, the man who never gave in. 
And you can fill that with your life and you will not give up. There's a moment of truth, folks, for every Christian. And that moment of truth, I present it to you every Sunday at the end of the sermon. And that comes up week by week at many moments during your week, many moments in your life. There's a moment of truth. I would say many moments of truth in every Christian's life where the question starts to come into our mind. Why is this happening to me? And then immediately you'll hear another voice. If you're listening, you'll hear this voice whispering in the background saying, will you trust me? Will you? Will you trust me? There's one voice saying, why, why, blame, blame, God, this, that, the other thing, all the reasons why it's not fair or whatever. And behind it is this other voice whispering, will you? Trust me, will you? There's a moment of truth, and I hope that you will answer that. Then we come to to doubt. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it earlier in the sermon and last week a bit. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is force and fury. It is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed and it's carrying you along. Doubt is a natural product of being a person who believes something. All right? Its author is not God. It is Satan. Now how do we know this? Well, we know that it's Satan. He is the author of doubt because the first question in the Bible, the first one, was a Hebrew word that it sounds, when you say it, it sounds like a hiss. And it's hiss, has God said. And immediately doubt is introduced by him. He did it again. He hissed with scorn and with mockery and with cynicism. Why I told you that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Cynicism is the enemy of faith. He came to Jesus and He said the same thing with that sneering, cynical, mocking voice. Oh, are you the Son of God? Well, if you are the Son of God, then why don't you take these rocks and turn them into bread? And Jesus did what Adam and Eve couldn't do. He looked up to the heavens and He said, I'll trust my Father first before I'll die first before I'll trust Your Word. And we all too often will, re- we will all too often believe the devil's lies before we will believe God's truth. And what is up with that, I ask you? And if we do that, we need to stop it and get a hold of ourselves and consider and think and count. Put it in the right column where it belongs and do not let it go. The truth will make you free. Satan will take you into bondage. Toxic, unfiltered, unchallenged doubt, when it's allowed to run wild, it turns into cynicism and mockery and sarcasm and I've prayed and nothing ever happens and blah, blah, blah. On we go. And it will do nothing but destroy 
What it does very often, and this is the next thing about doubt, it will isolate you. If you have a Christian brother or sister or friend that you don't see for a while in church and, and something's going and you know that they're not sick and you know that they're not you know, on a, tr- a business trip or something, they're just not showing up and they're getting isolated, more and more isolated, you can be sure that they are being crushed by doubt and wounds and hurt and that sin maybe has entered in and that it's got them. And we need to go look for those people and find them and try to get them back. Isolation. You see it, you know, on the, if you watch the National Geographic, you ever watch those predation videos where, you know, lions or cheetahs or whatever chasing a herd and they cut off the young or they cut out the frail or the weak or whatever and they get them off by themselves and then they devour them. Uh, or probably a better one because, you know, we don't want to talk about that. It's predation's awful, and it's, I don't like watching those videos, but I love horror movies. Don't you like the stereotypical horror movies, the slasher movies? Yeah. I mean, the first time I went in for my first cancer treatment in 2011, I bought a whole stack of these terrible, thrash, you know, slasher novels, and I read them while I was in isolation, and uh, it was awful. But in, the, in these horrible, stereotypical movies, you know, there's a bunch of uh, teenagers, of course, and they're all, you know, I don't know, they're out in the jungle, but they're wearing bikinis, the girls. The guys are, you know, goofy. And they're all in a group, and there's some monster out there, some person with a mask, uh, a ski mask, and he's going to get them. And, and they're walking along in the dark. You know that something's going to happen in a second. And what do they say? What do they say? Let's split up. You go that way. I'll go this way. And everybody in the audience is screaming, no, don't split up. Don't go that way. (laughs) We know what's going to happen. And that's what Satan is doing. He's telling you, isolate yourself. Nobody's going to care for you. Nobody's going to love you. Nobody's going to... Cynicism. It just... It just takes a hold of us and gets us to where we think, oh, everybody nginging in and we just complain about everything and blame God for everything and blame those Christians and blame the government and blame everybody. And Satan is rejoicing because he's got you separated. He's got you alone. And all you've got on is a bikini. (laughs) You're hoping you're helpless. I mean, really. You're left, you, you leave it unchallenged. You, you're double-minded, you're unstable, you're, you're prey. And he will take you down. And he does. But contrast that with verse 4. Look back at verse 4. If you challenge it, Jesus, James promises this. You will become perfect, or the word is actually better translated mature. You will become mature, complete, and lacking nothing. You see, he contrasts receiving nothing from the Lord to lacking nothing. James just forces us to look at both of them. Trust Him. Stay. And you will lack nothing. Get separated. Get isolated. Get pulled away. Become cynical. Let doubt take hold. And you will receive nothing. Nothing over against everything. And he's asking you to make a chain. Now sometimes you have to get help and this is one thing I want to make very clear very quickly. If you find yourself in that position under a trial and you don't reach out for help, you have no one to blame but yourself. There are plenty of people. This is a, this is a wonderful church, best church in El Paso. We have the best people in El Paso. The real Christians go to Christ the King. 
the, everybody else we're not too sure about and we're suspicious of them. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. If you don't reach out for help, you only have yourself to blame. You know, Ulysses, they were coming to the, the isle of the, where the sirens were and they were going to sing this song. He wanted to hear their song and he wanted to go through that trial, but he knew he wasn't going to make it, so he had his men do what? What did they do to Ulysses? They lashed him to the mast. Then he stuck cotton or had them stick cotton in their ears so they couldn't hear the sirens singing. And he went through the trial, but only because his men lashed him. And then he begged them. What did he beg them? Untie me, I command you. I'm Ulysses. I'm the king of the world. You know, whatever. And they didn't unlash him. They couldn't hear him. Thankfully. You may need somebody to hold you, lash you to the mast. I hope you've got someone in your life like that. And we've got a church full of people. Anyone in here would, would reach out if you asked for help, including me. And I'm very, very busy. I am, my schedule is so full, I don't know if I can make time for any of you. But I will try. I will suffer for Jesus and try to make... No, I have time. And our elders have time. And our deacons have time. And our women's council have time. We have time. And we will meet with you and we will help. We will lash you to the mass so that you don't get swept away. Reach out, get some help. Finally, wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask. Run to Jesus, not away from Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't run away. That's foolish. That's silly. Go to Him, not from Him. And too often, folks, in trial, we pull back. We are so disoriented. We just drop back. and well, What is going on? Rightfully so. I'm the first one to say it can knock you for a loop. And that's why you need people, you need a church, you need, you need to come to worship. Worship is not just so we can collect your money. It's so that we can go to the one who has dr- food and drink for us and find our refuge, find our wisdom. And the only way you're going to do that is looking at the cosmic trial. This trial that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, He withdrew. Listen, Matthew says... He withdrew about a stone's throw. He went into the garden, left his disciples, and he withdrew about a stone's throw. Listen to this. And he fell on his face and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And being, listen, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And sweat, his sweat began to become like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And that's a, that's a real medical condition where you're under such intense stress that your capillaries under your skin break and it's mixed with blood and it begins and you bleed as you sweat. This is the cosmic trial. And Jesus Christ counted it all joy. Since we have, listen, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us, listen, hold fast, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses and our infirmities, but he was tempted, he's able to sympathize with you because he was tempted in every single respect just like we are yet without sin 
Let us then therefore go to him with confidence. Draw nigh, draw near the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Lay aside every weight. Listen. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him went to the cross, endured it, and despised its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Jesus did not go through that. Listen, this is the last thing. I want you to please listen. Jesus did not go through that suffering and that trial of Gethsemane and the cross and the grave and the death and torture. He did not go through it so that he could say, you never will go through it. He went through it so you could go through yours. So you could survive and not be taken down and wrecked and ruined and cast up against the shore and broken into a million pieces. He went through it so we could go through ours, knowing that our sins are forgiven. What will take you apart? Your sins will take you apart. They'll rip you to shreds and leave nothing behind. Knowing that Jesus stood before God, abandoned, and and yet when we come to God, we don't get abandoned. He comes and says, come without reproach. I'm not holding anything against you. You're free. Knowing that Jesus took our reproach on the cross, the reproaches of them that reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69, a messianic psalm. And if you trust Him, you receive a crown of life. And let me tell you something. A crown is nothing. You know that. A crown is just a symbol of something else. It's a symbol of glory and of royalty and power and position. A crown is nothing but a symbol. And when he says you're going to get a crown of glory, he's not talking about some post-death heavenly reward. He's going to pass out crowns. That is ridiculous. What he's saying to us and what he's asking us to listen and think and, and work through in our mind is that crown represents everything that Jesus is and was and had and gave up for us including His very life, so that you and I could have that crown of life. And I'll tell you this, it's not a crown. You want to know what our crown of life is? It's Him. He is our crown. He is our life. And that's why in the book of Revelation, those 24 elders take their crowns off their heads and throw them at His feet. You are worthy, and only you. Will you trust Him? I pray you will. Father, we love you. Trials are not easy, and who knows better than your Son, our Savior, of what a trial can do, how it can tear you apart. And he was ripped to shreds on the cross for us and as us. And it's that that gives us the power to count it all joy, even when our hearts are torn. Help us. I pray 
to remain steadfast, fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus, especially now as we come to the table and we get ready to taste and see that the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. Fix our eyes on Him, the bread of life. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.